before we jump into God's word, great, uh, and great job this last December. If you are, if you hadn't been with us this last month, uh, the month of December, the whole thing has been focused on what we've been calling the big give, which would be acts of very tangible, visible demonstrations of generosity because God was generous with us in the gospel. And so whether it be food boxes or homes or mudding out homes or or space heaters or whatever, just great, great job. Uh, the Bible says this, it says, listen, uh, I mean, I've seen that video like, <laughs> I've seen that video probably five times now. And it's, if, it, every time, it just, it reminds me of when, what it was, we don't know when Jesus said it, but it says it's more blessed to give than receive, correct? And uh, I mean, you know that when you see stories like that, you know that when you have a, when you have uh, kids and you see their eyes light up, when you give them that thing they've been wanting so long, or if you're a grandparent, you know, again, which is, that's, that's the payoff for all the difficulties of being a parent. But I mean, it's like, it was like you, get, you give your little grandchild that awesome thing and they're just like, this is, this is amazing. And so uh, one of the things as we go into the whole, you know, the, the Christmas weekend is just remembering the fact that it, it is awesome to, to, to be able to give gifts to other people. I mean, it is awesome. That's a huge part. It's a huge part of Christmas. It's a huge part of the Christian life. But when it comes to Christmas, the essence of Christmas, it's really not about it's not about that as much as it is what God gave to us in the gospel. I mean, that's what it's about. And so with all the stuff going on, I don't miss the main, the main thing that Christmas is about. And I was thinking about that this week is, you know, what, what in the world, <clears throat> I mean, what did, that, what did the angels think when God's like, all right, boys, it's time to go make the announcement. I mean, think about it. I mean, we've been in this deal called the year of the Bible all year long. And what that's been about is helping us see that the big picture, the meta narrative of all the, all the 66 books uh, all the stories in there are telling one story. All the characters are about one character. And the story is about, I mean, God's redemptive plan. I mean, we, we do good for like two chapters. And in the third chapter of the Bible, it's like we rebel and we mess it up. And the other 39 books in the Old Testament, all it is is promise and prophecy. And he's coming and he's sending somebody better. And there's something better coming. That would be a prophecy. And it's, it's, it's amazing to think about that. But the announcement is better, right? I mean, prophecy is good. Something good is coming, but uh, the announcement is better. Something good has come. I mean, it's like a prophecy is like Amazon when you click on the box and it's like, hey, I'm going to click it. I'm going to buy that. That's like prophecy. Something good is coming. But the announcement is like when the Amazon truck pulls up into your driveway, it's like something good has come. All right. So that's what, that's what, that's what tonight is about. And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to be in a, there's like four or five familiar if you, if, even if you didn't grow up in church, if you, 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 some of these are familiar. I'm like Luke 1 you know, and Luke 2, uh, those are pretty familiar ones. You know, Luke 2 is kind of the classic one. Matthew 1 starts off kind of crazy with the genealogies and the hard-to-pronounce names. And then it, and then it gets into the, what we're going to look at tonight, and it's a narrative um, that uh, some of you will recognize. If you're new to church or new to Bible study, it might not be that familiar. But here's the point. Anytime you see a narrative in the Bible, what you want to do is you want to ask the question, uh, who do I most resemble in this story? Right. Who do I most resemble? Who am I most like? Or even better yet, who do I most want to be like uh, in the story? Because what you're going to see is uh, Christmas, as sentimental as it is and as historical as it is and as awesome as it is, it also demands a response. And what you're going to see in the story today is you're going to see three distinct responses to the gospel and to the Christmas story. And ask yourself, which one do I resemble most? Which one do I want to resemble the most? 
And so Matthew chapter 2, let me uh, read the first couple of verses. I've got to kind of set the story up, a little bit of the context. It's going to ruin some of your nativity scenes, but that's okay. That's all right. But, and then we're going to talk about the three responses. So uh, take your device or your paperback, leather bound, or you can even just look on the screen. But Matthew chapter 2, first couple of verses says this. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, loved ones, I'm not going to try to ruin it, but there is no story in the Bible that I can think of, certainly no Christmas story, that has more misinformation and confusion in this story. So if you're ready for it, let me listen to me carefully, but um, the wise men are not in your nativity scene. All right, now some of you, it's just like, I don't wanna believe that. And what I'm telling you is the story says that Jesus was born and then these wise men, they started on their journey. Now, we don't know exactly where they came from, probably an area called Persia. So, but anyway, it's somewhere between like 300 miles and 900 miles away when they started the journey. So let's say three months to a year and so when you look at these nativity scenes and you got one maybe sitting there on your coffee table or up on your mantle and you got the shepherds and you got the animals and you got little baby Jesus in a manger and you got Mary and Joseph and then you got those three wise men, that's, they're not there. You're like, what am I gonna do? I would just take them and put them across the room and bring them out in July, do something. But they're, they're like, not, they're not there. You're like, we got it in our yard. We'll take them and put them in the neighbors until, and then bring them out for Christmas in July. That would be amazing, all right? Because again, it's, they're not there. This is, this is not a manger. You're gonna see it's a house. A second thing, we don't even know how many there were. A lot of this comes from that old carol that's like, we three kings of Ori and R. And you know, it's, everybody's like, there's gotta be three. Uh, we don't know. Or the reason we think there's, people think there's three is because you're gonna see there's three gifts. That doesn't mean, I mean, if you've not ever been to a Christmas party and somebody was cheap and they didn't show up with a gift, I mean, that easily could have happened. More than likely, there was dozens that showed up and they had, uh, they had servants, they had, they had wives, they had kids, they had animals, they had all, there's a, there's a big caravan that came in there. Again, we don't know exactly who they are, but every indication is these were like white collar, wealthy government officials from a place, Persia, that's like miles and miles away. And you can kind of see that from the story. They travel a long way. They bring a lot of swag with them. I mean, they got some great gifts and they get an they get a audience with Herod like right off the bat, which gives you the idea that these were probably those government officials that were there. And by the way, even before we get into the responses, this is amazing news. Because right at the start, Matthew's trying to make clear the gospel is for everybody, no matter who you are. I mean, think about it. Gospel, Matthew starts off his gospel by saying the nations are coming to Jesus. He ends his gospel in what's called the Great Commission by saying, you, God's people, you go tell the nations. So it's for everybody. It's for like the, it's the blue collar shepherd. It's the white collar government official. It's the educated, the uneducated, um, every ethnicity. It's for everybody. And by the way, uh, this gets even reinforced because Matthew, just a little quick Bible, uh, little Bible theology, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different gospels, they all had an immediate audience that was slightly different than the other one. Meaning like, for example, Matthew, his main focus initially was to the Jewish people. You can see that and he's, he's trying to convince the Jewish people. It's like, this is the promised Messiah. All those Old Testament promises, Isaiah 53 and 
um, Psalm 22, when he says, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? All of those things, all those stories were pointing to one story, the coming Messiah. All right, so that's Matthew's, that's Matthew's goal. But read it sometime, but the first chapter, the first verses, it starts off with what most of us skip, and that's called a genealogy. It's like the lineage of where Jesus came from. It's almost like his resume. And instead of putting down all the awesome people that came from Jesus' lineage, he puts down some sketchy people. If you read that, there are some embarrassing stories within Matthew chapter one, and he includes those on purpose. And that's great, that's great, 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 great news for us. Because when you see it, you got stuff like, you got people in that story that were like prostitutes, right? You've got adulterers. You got a bunch of people with some embarrassing stories. And the reason that's great is there's probably two things that keep people from not responding to the gospel. One of them is religion and the other one is shame. People don't respond to the gospel because they're religious and they don't understand they need a savior. And we'll look at that in a second. But the, another reason is just shame. I've gone too far. I've done too much. And one of the things you gotta understand this Christmas, I mean, you gotta understand this. You gotta understand this. When you see that the gospel is from everybody. Listen, God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you right where you are. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So listen, bottom line is you gotta understand when God looks at you, he's like, you know what? The gospel is for you. It's for you, all right? Doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter. He takes sin very seriously. So listen to me carefully. Sin is very serious. Sin was so serious it cost the son of God is life, but he loves you still. And so bottom line, at some point, if you respond to the gospel, you can confidently say, you know what? I'm not my divorce, all right? I'm not my abortion. I'm not my spring break. I'm who God says I am in the gospel. So when we get there, here's, uh, here are the responses that you see. There's three responses to this amazing news, all right? Look at verse three, and this is the kind of the craziest guy. You're like, who, how in the world would I be one of these three? Well, let's see. Verse three says this. When Herod, there's the guy, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Skipping down to verse seven and verse eight says, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And listen, first response is anger. And that's Herod. Herod had no intention. If you read the rest of the chapter, Herod had no intention of worshiping him. As a matter of fact, he finds out about it and he ends up having all the babies under two years old. They're killed, all in that Bethlehem area. And this was not new for Herod. Herod was a big ball, big mixture of insecurity and ego and insanity all wrapped into one. Had his wife killed because she, she questioned a judgment that he made had his three sons killed because they in some way somehow threatened his power. Here's, you wanna know how crazy he was? Here's how crazy Herod was. Herod actually knew everybody hated him because of how that stuff that he would do. So he made a law and what he did is he took some of the most loved people from the most loved families and put them in prison and made this law. He said, when I die, those people get executed. And what was his rationale? He's like, I know nobody's gonna mourn for me, but if we kill them on the same day, at least there will be mourning and crying that day. I mean, that is, that is certifiable right there. But he also was looking for something. He did a bunch of stuff. He built a ton of buildings. He built these aqueducts that are amazing. 
One historian said he built these storage sheds that were so good that even like 20 years ago, these archaeologists, when they're digging it up, they would find like food he'd put in there that somehow to preserve. You're like, what does that have to do with me? When you look at it, the reason he gets so angry, I mean, because imagine this. Imagine the story. Imagine when the wise men show up to the palace. Hey, we're looking for the king. He's like, you're looking at him. He's like, no, we're looking for the king. He's like, you're looking at him. No, we're looking for the king because we saw a star. We're looking for the king. And it's all, I keep thinking of the, uh, the elf. It's like, you call, me a, you call me an elf one more time. And that's what it's like. It's like, if you call somebody else a king one more time, and the wise man just, just backed off. But what you see is Herod, although crazy and although more famous than all of us, the idea was he's still looking. He's looking for ultimate things in places that weren't ultimate. He's looking for life in dead places, and he's disappointed because he can't find them. And you and I have a gravitational pull toward doing the same exact thing. We look toward stuff all the time. As, as a matter of fact, it said like this. It said that every person, let's just say every person in this room, every person in this room, every person at every campus tonight is, is looking for four or five, three or four basic things. They say we're looking for fulfillment. Fulfillment, security, and significance. That's put different ways, but there's a part of you that God made. It's like, you know what? I want to feel safe and secure. And the other part's like, I want to feel, I want to feel significant. Like my, what I do matters. I'm not just put, turning pages on a calendar. I'm not just that wave that comes up and then goes down and nobody knows anything at all. And then it's like, I want a sense of fulfillment. I want that deep soul thirst, that deep soul thirst to be satisfied in some way. And so what we talk about all the time is that gravitational pull toward trying to find those things that God put in you to be fulfilled in Jesus. We try to find it in other stuff, whether it be money or relationships or, hey, this girlfriend's gonna finally quench all my insecurity or this boyfriend or whatever it is, this approval, this accolade, this accomplishment. And those aren't bad things. They're good things that when we make ultimate things end up not holding water. And so the, you know, the, the difference of that is, now here's the deal. The wise men, we'll see this in a few minutes, but the wise men, actually, verse 10, it says, when they actually came to a toddler, toddler Jesus, it's like they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, Matthew could have just said they got happy, but he didn't. He said they rejoiced, he used four words, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, why is that? Because actually, the gospel and Christmas, they offer joy, not just happiness, because listen, the best this world can offer is happiness. And loved one, there's nothing wrong with happiness. Man, happiness beats sadness every time. But happiness is basically based on your happenings. You know, something good happens. You win the lottery. You rejoice, I'm happy. Somebody gives you a dog, you know, for Christmas. You're like, I'm happy. Somebody gives you a cat for Christmas. You, whatever, you just can move on. But I'm just saying, you, 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 uh, it's happiness. What the gospel offers is all of those things that we think about we have to have. That's where they, I mean, think about the wise men. All that stuff, security, fulfillment, significance. I mean, and they didn't even know half of what we know. And think about it, security, how much more security do you have to have than the Son of God knows you and still loves you? And we talk about this all the time as well. It's like, when you say, I love you, but I don't know you, that's just sentimentality. You know, I love you, but you don't really know him. That's just cinema, that's a Hallmark movie, all right? They say, I, you know, I know you, but I don't love you, that's, that's rejection. I know you, I don't like what I see, and you're rejected. But to say, I know you and I love you, that's, that's only found in the gospel. I know you and I love you. 
mean, think about that when they said, they, he knows this and he still chose to die for us. I mean, significance. I mean, significance. How much more significant can you be than you're an adopted son or daughter of Almighty God through repentance and faith in Jesus? All right. How much more significant do you need to be? I've been gifted, I'm loved. I'm commissioned to make a difference for the glory of God and the good of others. I mean, what else is gonna, no, what, a slap on the back, and applause, nothing's gonna do that. And so what happens is, um, you know, one of two things is gonna happen because Herod had some questions, by the way. And I hadn't said this at the previous services and I should have. Herod basically had some questions and he asked them, and there's nothing wrong with questions. Maybe you grew up in a tradition, or maybe you thought the church is like, hey, don't, don't ask questions, don't ask questions. Like, listen, you ask questions. The Bible says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you don't check your intellect at the door when you come in. You don't check your intellect at the door when you look at the claims of Jesus. You don't. Herod is a dishonest doubter. Herod really didn't want to know the answers to who the king was. And loved one, I would just say this. I don't know why you're here. I mean, some of you came because uh, you go to church here all the time. Others of you here because you lost a bet or mom or grandma made you come if you were gonna get your dinner paid for, whatever the reason is. There's nothing wrong with you asking honest questions. God will go to great lengths to reveal himself to an honest doubter. If you don't believe that, look at the disciples. Remember the disciples, they ask questions all the time, all the time. And he would, he would go back to gospel over and over and over and over again. Eventually, it's like what we talk about. Listen, if the tomb is empty, if Jesus came up out of the grave, then, then all the other questions still ask them. But if the tomb is empty, then you know, anything's possible. So what you've got to ask is, is uh, am, am, I, am I that person? Honest doubt, ask the questions, ask the questions. Second thing, this is, even, this is a scarier response because it goes from maybe somebody just kicking the tires of the Christian faith and it goes to somebody who's maybe been around church a long time. Let's look what happens in the next few verses. He says, in assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, they is the chief priests and scribes, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now here's what, just so you know what's going on. In some of your Bibles, if you're looking at a Bible, it's kind of indented a little bit. And what that means is it's a, it's, it's a quote that he's quoting. And here's what's happening. You got two groups of people here. You got the chief priests and the scribes. And if you're new to Bible study, what that basically, these are like the experts in the Bible. They knew those first 39 books, that Old Testament. They knew that stuff backwards and forwards. So much so that the king's like, hey, where's this king that I'm hearing this stuff about? And they, got, they go to an obscure minor prophet named Micah, Micah 5, 2, and they're like, you know what, that's just down the road. That's in a place called Bethlehem, which is about like five to seven miles away from where this conversation is taking place. And so he quote, they, they actually quote it. These people would have had a lot of those 39 books memorized. And he says, oh, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Second response is apathy. Apathy. These very religious experts, you would think if you'd never read this passage before, Herod would ask the question, the chief priests were like, hey, it's in Bethlehem, it's five miles away, let's go! And he would put the backpack on and they'd make a beeline, they wouldn't collect $200, they would just go. But that's not what happens. They're like, 
Yeah. It's right down the road. About a 15-minute Uber ride. You just, that's where it is. And here's the scary part about that is um, these were experts in the Messiah. And when the Messiah is real close to them, they don't even recognize him. The scary part is this is what is repeated throughout the New Testament is that oftentimes religious people, even Bible-believing people, when they got near Jesus, they would know all these stories about him, all these prophecies, all these promises, and sometimes they're three feet away from him. Sometimes they're at a party with him. Sometimes they're having dinner and they're like right there, right there, and they don't know him, they don't recognize him, they know about him, but they don't know him. And the phenomenon in our day and time is called Facebook stalking. That's what it's called. Maybe it's Facebook stalking, Twitter stalking, Instagram stalking, whatever, social media stalking. And you all kind of know what it is. It kind of came on the scene about 10 years ago. And what that means is you all kind of see it. Hopefully you're not doing it. But basically what Facebook stalking is, is when you are, you like follow somebody famous, usually like a celebrity on social media and you see all the stuff they do and you're like, oh, look, Kim's eating it. She's eating like lamb chops and they're like vacationing in Monaco and look at the amazing car they got. But then you talk about them like you know them. It's like, oh man, look, they're going to Monaco and her and Kanye, they're not getting along now. And it's amazing what kind of car they got. And you're like, bro, it's like, you don't know them. You know about them but you don't know him. And what the scribes and the chief priests are an illustration of in this story is basically just Jesus talking. And here's the point. It's real hard for church people to get saved. It's real hard for church people to get saved because we can be around it so much and be religious and be comfortable. It's like, yeah, man he, man, he walked on the water. Yeah, he died for the sins. But there's a, and, and what we end up doing is we can believe that he did something and not believe in him. And loved one, there is a huge difference between believing that Jesus died and believing in Jesus who died for you. You walked in the room and you saw a chair and you believed that chair would hold you up, but not until you put the totality of your weight on it, did you believe in that chair. When you sat down in it, you're like, I believe in that chair. And one of the scariest verses in the Bible is, as I mentioned last week, is mentioned to religious people. People who go to church, at least they go on Christmas and Easter, man. I mean, they're there. Maybe they grew up in church. Jesus in about five chapters would say, you know what? You're doing ministry, you're reading your Bible, get away from me, I never knew you. And what's scary about this is Jesus would say this later on in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. It's what the whole year of the Bible is about. The whole thing is bearing witness about Jesus. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have, that you may have, you may have life. Um, bottom line is the reason most religious people never come to Jesus is because because these same religious people, this same group of people, check this out, 
you fast forward and go about 20 chapters, these same people who initially like, ah, whatever, he's down the road. This is the same group of people, or at least the same you know, chief priests and scribes. 20 chapters later, they're, they're not apathetic. They're like, crucify him. When he said, I'm Lord God and King, and you are a sinner, they're like, that's too far for us. Put him on a cross. Because bottom line, here's what's gonna happen eventually. When you take the claims of Jesus seriously, I'm not talking about a sanitized, culturalized American Jesus. I'm talking about the Jesus of the Bible. When you take those claims seriously, C.S. Lewis, I think, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Christianity, if it's false, is of zero importance, it's of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And so again, you might, man, I'm talking, you know, talking to the deacon, I'm talking to the church member, I'm talking to the pastor, I'm talking to the, I was like, listen, if you've gone from I believe that to I believe in, we'll come back to that in a second. Look at the last few verses, verse 9, 10, and 11. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, Star is the way that he's trying to bring these people to Jesus. For you, it might be a divorce. For you, it might be depression, loss of a job, loss of your health. We see a lot of people that repent and believe in Jesus every year. We, we love, it's, it's the most awesome thing to watch. It's awesome to watch how every story in some ways is so, it's so unique and different. The names are different. We got, you know, it's, the 90-year-old man, it's the six-year-old girl, it's the 20-year-old farmer, it's the 40-year-old exec. It's awesome. But as I've said many, many times, the, the details are different, but the, the story is always, there's some star that's leading them there. What I mean by star is they're walking around thinking, man, I'm too sexy for my shirt. I mean, everything's going pretty awesome. And then eventually what God has to do is drop a boulder on your life and show you, you know what? Because you used to think, man, that Christianity thing, that was just a crutch and that was just for weak people, and then God drops a boulder on your life, and eventually, sometimes when you finally hit the ground, the only place you have to do is look up, that's when finally you're like, you know what, I, I am crippled. You know what, I am weak. I need God for, to do for me what I cannot do for myself. So anyway, story goes on. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then, and he, this is where you get the three, but we don't know. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. And here are the three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. All right. Third response would be adoration. This is what the wise men did. Adoration. What's the verse say? It says they fell down. I mean, this is very unusual now, but in the East for a, for a man in that culture right there, that they, they, basically they come, in, I mean, they come in front of a two-year-old or a one-year-old and what do they do? They see a one-year-old in a house and what are they? They immediately just bow down. I mean, have you ever seen a one-year-old that you've even been remotely tempted? I mean, grandparents, I know you're like, hey, see my grandbaby, I understand that. But you never like worshiped him, you never worshiped her. That's what happens. They come in there and they worship and then they start giving him gifts. And the gifts are kind of indicative of what their, their bowing is. And check it out real quick. First, the first one was this, he gives him gold. Gold's symbolic of kingship. It's like, here, I'm giving you gold to this king. You're king, you're king. You're the one in charge. King means one in authority. You, you, if, you ever, if you ever come to Jesus like that, you know what? We call, the way we say it here is surrendering your life to the lordship of Christ. 
you know what, I'm not the boss of me anymore, you're the boss of me. By the way, the Bible calls that repentance. I know sometimes we think repentance is the crazy white-haired preacher down there at the drum circle. It's like, repent for the end is near. All repentance means I'm turning directions. I'm not the king of my life anymore. You're the king. Then he gives him frankincense. Frankincense was like what a priest would do. A priest, you know, is, I guess, technically, that's a mediator between God and man. The Bible says Jesus is the high priest. In the Old Testament and all that sacrificial system, what they would do before Jesus came is they would take like a lamb and, they would, uh, and the priest would take it out and he'd put the hand on the head of a goat, kind of like, you know what, the sins are going on the people. There would actually be two. One they would send out, that's where we get our word scapegoat from. We had to, they would send the goat out into the wilderness, but the other one they would kill. They would kill, they would kill, the, kill the goat, they would kill the lamb. And that's why John the Baptist steps out and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's, he's talking about, talking about Jesus. So the third one's kind of different, it's myrrh. Can I just tell you this? If you were throwing a birthday party for your kid and some other kid shows up with myrrh, you're probably calling security. You're certainly not letting them play together ever again because myrrh was embalming fluid. Myrrh was what you did when you were like taking a dead person and you were gonna embalm them. Now, whether the kings knew it totally or not, but obviously this is a foreshadow of the cross of Jesus. That's what you gotta remember at Christmas. The cradle and the cross, they go together, all right? Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And when you look at this story, um, again, you might, uh, you might have been at church a bunch of times, but let me, I mean, my question would be this is, do you know, do you know Jesus like that? Has there been a time when you actually surrendered to the Lordship of Christ again? Maybe you've heard this a hundred times, but tonight something is stirring in your heart that God's like, you know what, this is the time, this is the time. You've been an usher, you've been this thing, but you know, you've been in church, but something is like, you know what, this is for you, this is for you. And so I don't wanna make this overly complicated at all. A lot of times we'll just say ABC, ABC. So let me just talk about ABC for just a minute before we do the candle thing. Okay, A, just let A stand for admit. In order to actually respond to the gospel like the wise men, you gotta admit you need a savior to begin with. You gotta admit it, that you don't need a life coach, you don't need a therapist, you need a savior. Because here's the, here's the bottom line of the bottom line. The reason we don't, the reason we need a savior and not a life coach and not a therapist and not a, not a attaboy and not your best life now, what you need is we need a savior based because at our core, it's not that we are mistakers, that we're sinners. You're like, man, I came here and you offended me. Well, that's because you're a sinner. I mean, I'm just saying that's because you're a sinner and pride's like, don't call me a sinner. We are sinners, both by nature and by nurture. We are, we are sinners, we're born into that. And so when you look at it, you're like, you're gonna have to convince me. Um, and again, we don't have time for that, but I would, let me just give you one example about why, you, why we need a savior. And the reason that you get, before you ever come to the gospel, you gotta understand I need a savior. So here's this, a lot of times people will say, well, break out the 10 commandments, and we've done that before. Because every time, we've broken all of God's basic laws, like the top 10, we could go through that, we, you know, we can go through that. But even before we do that, I mean, we think about God's perfect law, man, we can't even keep our own law, correct? We don't even keep our own law. Nobody has lied to you more than you. You don't believe me? All right, let's talk in a week, because here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna make a New Year's resolution. And that New Year's resolution 
99% of us, we're gonna like last till the seventh, all right, maybe. The rest of us, I mean, think about, do you even remember your New Year's resolutions last year? I mean, how many unused gym memberships are there in this room? I mean, he's like, I'm gonna do it. This is gonna be the year. Going from 235 to 225, baby. Let's do it, all right, it's gonna happen. It's done, it's like Peloton. Your Peloton just like, that's where you put the dirty laundry. I mean, that's all, that's all, he's like, hey, I wanna do it, but I just don't. How many times have you like, God, if you get me out of this mess, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I'll do whatever. Again, nobody's lied to you more than you. And here's the great part of that is, God's not in love with some future version of you. God's not waiting for you to go, you know what? Get your act together and then we'll talk. What you have to do is like, you know what? I need a rescuer. I need a savior. I need somebody to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That's A. B is believe. Just believe. Again, not believe that, but believe in. It'd be like this. If you're uh, sitting here on the, you know, it's like if you grew up and somebody taught you how to swim, there was probably a point in time, whether a swimming pool or a lake or something, you had somebody down there, a parent, a grandparent, somebody down there, it's like, jump, jump, I'll catch you, I'll catch you. And you had to make a decision. You're like this, like this. And you're like, I'm not sure. Because when you're still on the shore, you are believing that. I believe that's my dad. I believe that's my grandmom. I believe that's my, whatever. You jump and you go from believing that to believing in. And tonight, what you gotta go from is you gotta go from believing that. I believe that Jesus died. I believe that Jesus was the king. And to believing in. Believing in. I believe in Jesus and I believe that Jesus, when he was on the, somehow when he pushed up on the nail scarred hands and he said, it is finished, that counts for me somehow. I believe when he said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do, that somehow that counted for me. He wasn't just there for me, he was there instead of, he was there instead of me. And then see is confessed, Jesus is Lord, he's the king of my life, he's the boss, he calls, he calls the shots. He calls the shots. I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? So normally what would happen is preachers are like, hey, close your eyes and bow your heads and repeat these words after me. And we're just not gonna do that tonight, all right? So here's what I'm gonna do. Eyes up, head up. But if this is like, that's for me. That's for me. I'm a deacon or this is the first time I've been in church for 100 years. But if like, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I, I don't know Jesus like those wise men knew. And again, they didn't know half of what we know. They're bowing before him before he walked on water, before he preached a sermon, before he healed somebody, and certainly before he died on a cross for them and rose up out of the grave, okay? But if that's you, then with your eyes open and your head up, in your heart of hearts, back to God. God's not like, I can't hear you. God wants to hear from you, but you don't have to say it audibly. But your heart cry to God is like, dear God, hey, I admit I'm a sinner. I've broken your law and I've broken your heart. And I believe, I believe, I don't, I don't have all my questions answered, but I believe that somehow in some way, you know, what you did on the cross counted for me and then confess Jesus as Lord. I'm not the boss of me anymore. I surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And by the way, the way we know, the way you can kind of tell us, here's the deal. It's a lot of times like raise your hand and that's, that's fine or put your flashlight out. Here's the bottom. If you actually said, that's me, that's what I did, then you will tell somebody the way you know is like, I'm not ashamed of Jesus anymore. So maybe you came with a friend, maybe you came with family, maybe you came with that grandma that's been praying for you for like 20 years and you didn't even know it. 
before you get out of the parking lot, just say, Grandma, I just wanna tell you, I don't know what it was all about and I don't know what went on, but when that preacher was talking about that, I, as best I knew how, I gave my life to Christ. I gave my heart to Christ. I asked him to save me and forgive me. What do I do now? She can help you. We'd love to help you. If you can't afford a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. If a friend brought you, man, tell that friend. If you came all by yourself, man, come out in the lobby, give me a high five and say, man, I gave my life to Christ today, all right? It'll be awesome. So um, here's what I'm gonna do. Let me, let me pray for us. And then we're gonna do uh, kind of the cool moment in a difficult 18 months for virtually everybody. This will be, uh, I want you to kind of breathe in the next few minutes because it's, very encouraging. So Father, thanks for the men and women here. Thanks for Christmas Eve. Thanks for Christmas. Thanks for the fact you became a man, dwelt among us, and then lived the life we should have lived, and then died the death we deserve to die. And so we want to be like the wise men and rejoice exceedingly with great joy. God, help us to chase after you this Christmas season. Here in a few minutes, we're going to see a bunch of lights and help us be mindful that as soon as you saved us, you put us on the rescue team. And the moment, the moment you came and reconciled us to yourself, you put us on the rescue team. God, I pray for the brand new believers. We prayed all week long that you would, you would save people. And we've seen people saved today that a lot of people had written off and said, you know what? That guy's too far, too far gone. Gotta pray the whispers into some young ladies here or even some, some men here. It's like you've gone too far and you've, you're too much. And if they only knew, listen, God knows and he loves you still. If you gave your heart to Christ, God, encourage them, encourage them. You know what? They are not their past. They're not what people say. They are who you say they are, adopted and redeemed and reconciled and chosen and forgiven and adopted. So God, help us live that way in the days ahead. In this next three or four minutes as we just see the magnitude of just light spreading, burn that in our minds. She said, you know what? Love you in such a way. Do good works in such a way as the people will glorify you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's where we are. Um, time participatory I've been working on that for like two weeks participatory Mike, uh, <laughs> sorry and so when you, uh, when you do this, again look around make sure that person around you is getting the candle lit but go ahead and stand, it's easier to move a candle when you stand a little bit and they got some amazing singers up here we're blessed every week but their job is to facilitate you giving praise back to God, right? And so uh, do that, join in on the song, and then we'll close here in a minute.
services every every week is uh, first of all we say you're loved and you need to know that on behalf of the Frank family you're loved and Merry Christmas on behalf of Billboard Church you're loved and Merry Christmas and uh, hope you know that God loves you and the way we say you're loved and then we say you're sent all right so you're sent whether it be to friends or family you have a blessed and Merry Christmas you're dismissed.